So our first Bible reading is taken from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12 and commencing at verse 1, the parable of the wicked tenants. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence round it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He has still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him. But they feared the crowd. So they left him and went away. And for our second reading, we continue with Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and commencing at verse 13, reading through to verse 17, the question about paying taxes. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. It is, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is on this? And whose title? They answered, The emperor's. 
Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are of the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. I have long thought that numismatics, the study of coins, ought to be a lot more interesting than in reality I find it. In theory, there is so much that we can learn from these artefacts of money that previous civilizations have left behind, from their politics to their sociology to their religious beliefs. But in reality, whenever I've got lost on the second floor of the British Museum and accidentally wandered into their otherwise perpetually deserted coins and medals gallery, all I can see are row after row of small and virtually indistinguishable little metal things. Maybe it's a bit like stamp collecting. You either get it or you don't. Anyway, work with me, because this morning I'm going to try and make one ancient coin at least a bit more interesting. This is a tribute penny from the reign of Tiberius Caesar. He was emperor of Rome from 14 to 37 AD, which covers the whole of Jesus' adult life. And the story we heard just read from Mark's gospel is on the surface a controversy story about taxation policy. But there is more going on here than meets the eye. Uh, in the interest of transparency, by the way, I ought to express my debt to um, Tom Wright and Chet Myers, which are the commentaries that I was uh, reading and partly cribbing from for this sermon. I don't know all this stuff uh, without reading it somewhere. Uh, there were a variety of taxes that the Jews of the first century had to pay. So uh, there was the temple tax, which was their tithe, their tenth of a person's income that went to support the temple and the priests and the sacrificial system. And, you know, see a sermon from a couple of weeks ago, some of us still practice giving a tenth of our income to our church today, and that's where this, this idea comes from. Uh, but then there was the tax payable to Herod, which was a kind of local tax to the local ruler, and then there was the Roman tax, which was basically a poll tax, payable by everyone who was subject to Roman rule. And those of us who are old enough to remember the 1980s will know exactly how popular poll taxes can be with the general public. The Roman version was a powerful reminder for those living in Roman-occupied lands that they were not free. And this, from a Jewish perspective, was a very sore point. You see, from the time of the Babylonian invasion, some 600 or so years earlier, the Jews had been ruled over by a succession of foreign powers, each in turn reminding the people of Israel that their promised land was no longer their own. And, of course, where Rome ruled, Rome taxed. And since the time of Herod the Great, Rome had been taxing the population of Palestine. 
In addition to this, the Herods, the Jewish puppet kings, had added their own local levies, which they used uh, for some good stuff, but also things like maintaining their court, uh, military troops for law and order, but of course also their luxurious building programs. Taxation had been a central issue in the brief Jewish rebellion, which had happened at the time uh, Judea had first come under Roman administration when Jesus was about 10 years old. So he would just about have been at the point where he'd have known about this Jewish rebellion. Uh, and tax was at the centre of that. And through the decades uh, of Jesus' life, the burden of this tribute tax, as it was known, the paying of a tribute penny to Rome, had been borne disproportionately by the peasants, who of course could least afford it. This is one of the injustices of a poll tax. It, it's paid equally by everybody. And if you're rich, you can afford to pay it easily. And if you're poor, you can't. It was a major cause in the rise of bandits in the countryside, as those who couldn't perhaps pay were forced from their lands or their small holdings, making them homeless and penniless. But it wasn't just the financial burden which made this so unpopular. It wasn't just that it was a symbol of foreign oppression, although both of those were very real. Uh, the Jews did not like these coins that were used to pay the tribute tax, but there's another layer to their hatred of these coins. Um, the heads side of the coin, which I understand because I looked it up on Wikipedia, is known as the obverse, is that right? Uh, this has on it, and you can see it here, the profile of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. And the inscription around it in slightly abbreviated Latin for the classicists amongst us. Yes, Nigel, I'm looking at you. Uh, it reads, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Or to put that slightly differently, Augustus Tiberius, son of a god. And then on the reverse, the other side, you can see Pax, the embodiment of the empire, sitting there on a throne, and the inscription there calls this embodiment of empire the high priest. As Tom Wright put it, if the Romans had gone out of their way to be as offensive as possible to first century Jews, they could hardly have done it better. Interestingly, the only other place in the gospel where the word inscription appears, other than in our reading from this morning, is at the crucifixion, where the notice of Jesus' conviction is posted over his head, declaring him to be the king of the Jews. And as with the reference we saw last week to those getting the places of honour at Jesus' left and right hands, being a call forwards to the criminals executed at his left and right hand at the cross, this is another example of Mark asking his alert readers to see the shadow of the cross falling across the stories that describe the way to the cross. So here we have Jesus, who uh, Mark's gospel is trying to convince us is the son of God. He's standing in the temple, which is ruled by the high priest. And as we've just sung, Jesus in Christian tradition is the great high priest and here we have Jesus the great high priest standing in the place ruled by the earthly high priest asking for a coin which describes the emperor as the son of God 
and the empire as high priest. The layers of loaded tension that Mark is offering us here are, are very clear and highly provocative. And the message is really that this is a religious controversy, not just a social or political one. Although it is a social and political one, but we must not miss the religious layers here. Now, interestingly, many uh, first century Jews, particularly those who regarded themselves as perhaps more religiously observant, would try to avoid using, owning, or even touching these Roman tribute coins. It's interesting, isn't it, when they ask Jesus the question, he doesn't have one in his pocket. And he has to ask his opponents to produce one for him to look at. So you can just imagine, can't you, the person who had to reach into their pocket and admit to carrying and having with them one of these blasphemous, treacherous, traitorous coins. Jesus' demand to see the coin was carefully targeted to cause maximum embarrassment to the person who produced it. And of course, someone does have one, because Jesus' opponents were busy trying to both have their cake and eat it. They were chasing both the appearance of religious purity and Roman money. And this coin, in the hands of a Pharisee or a Herodian, represented collaborative politics at its most blatant. We want to be religiously pure, but oh yes, we do have a tribute coin. You're absolutely right. Jesus is highlighting their hypocrisy as he sets about evading their trap. So they had been hoping that he would either support paying the taxes to Rome, in which case he'd have lost the popular support of the crowd, or that he would denounce the tax and then they could have him on a charge of treason from the Romans. That, that's the trap they've laid for him. But Jesus is several steps ahead of them. And to understand uh, the layers of what he does next, we need a bit of context. So rewind about 200 years before the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish revolt against the Syrians who were ruling uh, Israel at that point. So Syrians and then kind of Greeks and then Romans, it kind of goes down. Uh, anyway, this revolt a couple of hundred years before Jesus against the Syrians uh, was known as the Maccabean Revolt. Um, it, it's probably, for example, during the Maccabean Revolt times that the book of Daniel gets written. And we've actually got uh, a book called One Maccabees, which sits in the Apocrypha. So we've got Bibles in our pews that have the Apocrypha in. And if you're interested, you can turn to One Maccabees, chapter 2, verse 68, and you can find the slogan of the Maccabean revolutionaries. And it was, pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commands of the Lord. So this slogan of the Jewish revolutionaries from 200 years before the time of Jesus captured nicely the Jewish duty to both Gentiles and to God. And it suggested that as far as Gentiles were concerned, the policy should be give back as good as you have got. What they have given you, give it back and then some. In other words, vengeance, payment in kind for violence received. So, fast forward to the time of Jesus and him saying, well, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Jesus is skirting the edges here of the language of revolution that's part of his culture. 
we've already seen as we've been going through Mark's gospel, that the disciples keep waiting for Jesus to call them to arms, to march on Jerusalem and retake the city. Jesus keeps telling them that his revolution is non-violent and that he's attacking a deeper evil than simply the pagan domination of the land. So he's not going to fall for the trap about the coins and the taxes. And he refuses to engage in this kind of should-we-shouldn't-we argument that they're trying to lure him into. I think there is a wisdom here that many in our world could learn about not getting sucked into superficial and binary arguments, especially on social media. It's also worth noting that Jesus does not lay down some timeless ethical ruling on the relationship between the church and the state. Although many have mistakenly tried to build such a theory on the basis of this passage. Rather, Jesus hits the ball back over the net at twice the speed with which it arrived. So, he says, firstly, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, which a superficial reading could simply interpret as, yeah, pay the tax. But to take it in this way is to take it in isolation from what follows. Jesus then says, give to God the things that are God's. And this is not a simple analogy between paying Caesar with one hand and God with the other. Rather, this is Jesus setting the competing demands of Caesar and God against each other, not harmonising them. And the fact that Jesus has just drawn everyone's attention to the blasphemous image, blasphemous image of the emperor on the coin gives his response a bit of a sense of, yeah, send this filthy stuff back where it came from. He's certainly been contemptuous of the Romans, not directly enough to get him into trouble. He also is echoing the Maccabean slogan, give the pagans what they deserve, pay back the Gentiles in their own coin, could be heard as a coded revolutionary slogan. So the Romans are hearing what they need to hear. The revolutionaries are hearing what they need to hear. Jesus has come to bring about a new world and a new kingdom. It is a revolutionary message. And the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming was one where the one true God becomes king of the world, where all the other pretenders to power, be they petty herods, high priests, or even emperors, are demoted to being the last and the least. Jesus' opponents had framed their trap as a conflict between the competing demands of God and Caesar, and Jesus escapes it by considering these claims, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God's what is God's, but not as compatible statements. This is not give to Caesar and give to God. They are incompatible demands. And he's inviting not faithful Christian disciples, but Pharisees and Herodians to act according to their allegiances. You see, the Pharisees would have known that according to their scriptures, all humans bear the image of God. And so God's claim over a person is total. It is inseparable from the money they hold in their wallets. The conclusion they should have drawn from Jesus' reply was that the debt they owed to God was everything their whole lives, to be handed over to God 
just as one might give a coin to the emperor if one was not already in allegiance to God. And the setting of the conflict, the temple courtyard, sets it firmly in the context of the Jewish sacrificial system, which was the mechanism for making offerings to God. And Jesus' inference that God's demand is total over humans could have been heard as a critique of the sacrificial system, inferring it should be superseded by a more complete offering of worship where you don't go and hand over your two turtle doves and a small goat, but you bring your whole self as an offering to God. Jesus is turning the challenge back on his opponents in no uncertain terms. He's calling their hypocrisy into account. He's challenging the status quo of their religious and political compromisers. And he's asking them what position they are then going to take on this issue. Not in some theoretical sense, but in the very real reality of their wallets. Come on then, Herodians and Pharisees. What are you going to choose? God or Caesar? And of course, this is why he gets such a strong reaction from them. They thought they'd put him on the spot in a no-win scenario, and they discover that this is exactly what he has done to them. And of course, their answer is already clear, because as it turned out, they already had the tribute coin in their pocket, ready to pay the tax. They'd already nailed their colours to the mast. These super-religious Pharisees and Herodians had already decided that they were going to give their allegiance to the emperor. In this seemingly innocuous response, give to the emperor what's the emperor's and to God's what's God's, Jesus is radically opposing the divine reign of God against the, and over the human reign of the emperor. He's not harmonising the two. Let me say this very clearly. This is no neat doctrine of obedient Christian citizenship. It's an invitation to choose where your ultimate allegiance lies. God or the emperor? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or do you pay Rome's penny? Is your allegiance with the non-violent demands? of the peaceable kingdom of God? Or is it with the empire sustained by the imperial armies? That is Pax sitting on that throne. The personification of Rome as the empire of peace. A peace, the Pax Romana, that only comes through the exercising of violence. What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Well, the vineyard parable that preceded this conflict with the Pharisees and the Herodians makes it clear where Mark wants his readers' loyalties to fall. His answer to the question of what belongs to God has already been found in this story, where it has been shown that all leaders are actually only tenants and that God owns the land of Israel, not Caesar. The parable made it clear that the gospel rejects the option of political cooperation with Rome and that the authority of Caesar and his tribute penny is invalid in the light of God's universal kingdom. So what can we take from this story, which has so often been used to justify Christian complicity with corrupt powers? So often it has been used to 
build a separation of the life of faith into two halves, where one half pays its taxes and the other half says its prayers. Too many sermons on this text have concluded with a justification of the church-state partnership and an exhortation on the responsibilities of being a good Christian citizen. Is this really a call for Christians to do deals with power? I don't know, to get bishops or other representatives inside the corridors of power to influence the government from the inside? Is this really a call for Christians to run charity programmes and food banks to compensate for the diminishing of the welfare state? Is this really a justification for Christians to ensure that we take advantage of our full range of charity tax breaks from the Chancellor? We might do all of those things, but I'm not sure this parable takes us to them. In the preceding chapter in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, Jesus has just been arguing with the religious leaders about the authority behind John's baptismal practice, which concluded with Jesus utterly rejecting their right to judge his actions. And in the parable about the vineyard that we just heard, we saw Jesus undermining any claim Jewish leaders may have made to authority. So by the time we get to our little dispute over this coin... The Pharisees and the Herodians know full well that Jesus has already entirely rejected their legitimacy. So the trap they set him is loaded with danger, and their rage when he escapes it is no less perilous. What Jesus finds himself in the middle of here is a crisis of allegiance provoked by the Jewish liberation struggle. In many ways, the dilemma facing Jesus in this story is analogous to that which faced Mark's community a few decades later. At the time Mark wrote his gospel, probably sometime in the 60s, there was a rising tension between Israel and the emperor that would shortly lead to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Romans in AD 70. Historical sources tell us that this issue of taxation was still a flashpoint at the time Mark's gospel was written, and his original readers would have had to negotiate their own path through the tensions around religious conviction, political rebellion, and economic choices. Mark's gospel, far from encouraging its readers to pay their taxes and be good Christian Roman citizens, instead strongly asserts an ideology which rejects both Roman colonial presence and Jewish violent revolt. Just as Jesus resisted both of these in his answer, so his followers are to do the same. Bowing down to the emperor is not the way, but neither is taking up arms against him. The third way of Jesus was to turn the political challenge back on those who are trying to force the issue. It's the path of nonviolent resistance, of refusing to accept the legitimacy of the empire, but also refusing to do violence to overthrow it. In our context, the issue is rarely the paying of taxes. Although we are not immune to the imposition of unfair and unjust taxation on occasions. But I find myself wondering whether the issue in our world might be that some of us are simply not taxed enough. In Sweden, often given as an example of one of the best places in Europe to live, taxation rates are higher than in most other countries. 
It has always seemed to me that a progressive taxation system which benefits everyone is far more just than tax cuts for the wealthy and the scaling back of public services. This week's budget has been rather obscured by the coronavirus crisis, but in the midst of the politically loaded language about levelling up, which rather sounds to me like it'll be the fault of the poorer regions if they don't rise to the challenge set before them, there were also significant tax breaks for wealthy business owners. So as we try to work out how to apply the principles of Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the Herodians to a contemporary context which is in some ways very different but in other ways very similar to that which Jesus would have known, I wonder if our non-violent financial resistance to the dominating oppression might look something like generosity and care for others. What if our response were to be the giving of time and energy and resources to projects that benefit the common good? What if our way out of the trap that lies before us is neither quiescent complicity to the state nor the extremist politics of social revolution? What if we can't just sit back and ignore it and hope it'll be okay, but neither are we going to get seduced into the radical nonsense that some of us find ourselves getting sucked into on social media? What if our way out of that trap is to develop, to actively work at building a culture of generous, loving care for those who are disadvantaged in our world and our society? coupled with a commitment to speak out boldly and with courage to challenge those political and economic systems that impoverish the poor and enrich the rich. Maybe the role of the church is to play its part in shaming the powers that be just as Jesus shamed the Herodians and the Pharisees by holding them to account for their empty promises and their hypocritical posturing. What if, through our involvement in organisations like London Citizens and through our partnerships with organisations like the Simon Community, we can be part of shaping a new world where the kingdom values of justice and compassion are foregrounded and futile arguments about legalistic religion are set aside? What if we can learn to be those who see our money as a mechanism for liberation rather than as a trap that ensnares us? What if we can learn the truth that our citizenship is not with any earthly power, but rather is with the kingdom of God, which comes to us on earth as it already is in heaven? And so I wonder, can we answer in our lives the call of the kingdom of God, which draws us to acts of courageous resistance and generous love? Uh, one of the great joys of uh, the Baptist way of being church is that we have a membership system where we share together as those who are committed in covenant to the work of this place. And Susan, you've been worshipping with us since early autumn, I think, is that about right? Uh, Susan uh, was accepted as a church member uh, at the church meeting um, a little while ago, and this is the first communion service, so um, Susan, have a, have a mic. 
and I'm going to ask Susan to uh, reconfirm her faith, and then there will be a, a couple of promises that we can all join in. And you're welcome to join in these promises, even if you're not a member, if you're just part of the fellowship in another way, that's fine. And if that speaks to you about wanting to join, come and have a chat with me. That would also be good. In the name of our loving God, it is our joy to welcome Susan into membership of this church. She's committed to serving God in this community, and today we acknowledge and thank God for that commitment. She has been a disciple of Jesus Christ for many years, and joins us by an affirmation of faith. So I'm going to ask her now to declare anew her faith. Susan, do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your creator, redeemer, and the sustainer of all things? I do this in the God in whom I trust. Do you believe that God has led you to share in the worship, life and witness of this local congregation? I do, and I thank God for the gift of fellowship. Will you share with us the gifts that God has given you, that together we may serve God in our local community and in the wider world? I will. All I have is given by God. So as Baptist Christians, we covenant together as a community of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Baptised into his name, we share the joys and responsibilities of fellowship. We gather for worship and to discern the mind of Christ. Together we seek the kingdom of God through prayer, witness and service. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we seek to build one another up in love. So, Susan, will you share in this common life and service? And will you walk together with us before God in ways that are known and yet to be made known. I will. Thanks be to God. Now I'm going to ask the congregation here at Bloomsbury, uh, if you're able, would you please stand? And I invite you to make a covenant promise to our new member. So, do you welcome Susan into the fellowship of this worshipping community? God has given us the gift of Susan and through her has given us gifts for ministry in the life and witness of this congregation. Will you support her in Christian service and in the responsibilities of church membership? Will you pray for her and encourage her through hospitality, friendship and prayer? Thank you. You can sit down. Susan, uh, we have agreed that in the interest of not shaking hands, we're going to defer the right hand of fellowship for another day. But Susan, it is an absolute joy to have you as part of Bloomsbury. Welcome as our latest member. You stand in a long tradition going back over 170 years, so that's, it's just amazing. So I'll take that back from you, and you can sit down again, and we will share bread and wine together. Loving God of all creation, we give you thanks and praise for all your great love which you have shown to us. Above all, we praise you for the new way through violence which you have opened before humanity in the crucifixion of your Son, Jesus Christ. When we look at the world in which we live, we see so often people living with pain and suffering and fear and failure and threat and uncertainty. So we pray for those whose lives are dominated by the powers of sin and death. May your new way to life be true for them 
as hope and justice displace despair and defeat. We pray especially this day for all those who live under occupation. We think of those in the occupied territories of Gaza and the West Bank. We think of those in Syria, Iraq and Lebanon. Those whose homelands have been taken by extremist forces. For all those whose homes have been taken from them by force, we offer our prayers of intercession and our willingness to stand in solidarity. We pray especially for all those who work to achieve peace and reconciliation. Great God of new life, we commit ourselves to the path of hospitality and inclusion. We thank you for the opportunities our own freedom and democracy gives for us to speak out for others. As we have shared bread and wine this day, we have been reminded of the great feast of your coming kingdom. And in our own sharing, we have caught a glimpse of the great redistribution that is part of your vision for a renewed humanity. Help us to be generous to all. And to see your image reflected in each created human soul. Help us to see the spark of divine life in each person and to remember that it was for every person that you were prepared to give your all. May the cross make it true for us and in our world that the wall that divides us is broken down. Give us compassionate hearts that we might live and work for your coming kingdom that all may be included and none kept out. So we name the divisions that blight humanity, divisions of ethnicity, social standing, gender and sexuality, and we say before you that we will not live at ease while such divisions remain part of our world. Reach out through us, your people, to those whom others would seek to exclude. May we be generous and may we be kind and may we be loving and may it be true in our lives and in our life together that your kingdom banquet of welcome and celebration is open to all, that all may see how great is the love that you have for them. We offer these prayers in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>